Today on Not Sam Wrestling, coming fresh off my trip to Orlando for NXT Halloween Havoc, Brian Gowers, the former head writer from 1999 until like 2015 or something like that, is on today's show. Plus, MJF is making headlines again with his promo. We saw Uncle Howdy. I think this is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Boy, oh boy, here we are. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling 418. I hope everybody's doing great. I know I am. Coming off another great wrestling weekend, big Halloween havoc. And uh, if you watched it, it's on Peacock if you haven't watched it yet. If you are going to watch it, make sure you re If you haven't watched it yet, but you're going to watch it. Make sure you go back and watch the pre-show as well. I don't even know if they saved those pre-shows on Peacock. They should, because they're fantastic. The NXT ones specifically. But if they don't, you can also get the pre-shows on the WWE's YouTube channel. Um, I was down there. It's, it's very cool to see Halloween Havoc built up. You know, you forget that only a year ago when NXT did Halloween Havoc, it was a television special. And the year before, it was a television special. I believe this is the first year that NXT's Halloween Havoc has actually been a premium live event. And uh, it, it, it felt elevated. It felt like this was maybe the second biggest show of the year. You know, maybe, whereas at one point, I would say, whatever was going on WrestleMania weekend, so now what has become Stand and Deliver, right? Stand and Deliver is the is the traditional NXT WrestleMania weekend show. Um, that's obviously going to be the biggest show of the year. I would probably say war games nxt war games was the second biggest show of the year formerly but now that war games is on the main roster i think halloween havoc might be stepping into that place it felt like that and maybe that was just because it was a big card six matches instead of the traditional five and every single match on the show had a reason for being and it wasn't all title matches you know it's one thing to say every single match on the show has a reason for being when they're all title matches, because of course they have a reason for being. We're trying to find out who the champion's going to be. But on this show, only half the matches were title matches, right? You had the North American Championship, you had the Women's Championship, you had the Men's Championship. The other three matches were the coffin match between uh, Apollo Crews and Grayson Waller, the Weapons Wild match between Cora Jade and Roxanne Perez, and the ambulance match between Damon Kemp and Julius Creed. And so what you've got is a show where you've got three big title matches that have a, a nice depth to them and some history to it. But you've also got three personal rivalries that we've become invested in. And I felt like they did a really great job of getting us invested in definitely in the ambulance match, Damon Kemp versus Julius Creed because of all the history with the diamond mine, the fact that Brutus's career was on the line, the fact that we've watched the Creed brothers improve and improve and improve, and now we're seeing Julius in this position. And of course, I mean, Roxanne Perez versus Cora Jade, like they took a nice amount of time, three, four months, to tell this great story of best friends, and they're both young, and they're both clearly earmarked to be the future of the division. I thought that was great, and and you know, I thought that, that going in a different direction with Apollo Crews and making him darker, I think is a good thing for Apollo. You know, adding some, mysticism is not something that you would expect to be added to the character of Apollo Crews, but man, 
Apollo has a way of committing that I think is underrated because his first run in NXT was was so much, I'm a guy who smiles and has great matches. And then he went to the main roster and he was a guy who smiles and is capable of having great matches. It's when he starts doing characters that you're like, oh, when he's in it, dude, he's in it. Like when he was doing the Nigerian character with the accent and everything, it was like, the level that he's committing to this character, it's forcing me to take it seriously, where it could be ridiculous. And there were a lot of people that poo-pooed it immediately. If you gave it a second, it was like, well, any any issue that I have with this character is not based on the way Apollo performs it, because he's in deep with this thing. He's not breaking. And the same thing for this, like somehow having Apollo come back, and he had a he had a, a bit of a mean streak in him. But once he got thumbed in the eye and we started seeing the blood coming out of his eye and he and he started to really develop that that loathing for Grayson Waller, it's like when Apollo Crews hates, he doesn't just hate you. He summons demons to eat your soul. And you'd go, well, that makes no sense. I, I've never known that to be Apollo Crews. And then you watch it and you're like, well, I mean, Apollo is pulling it off. So I guess I can accept it. And that's that's the magic of it. That's what you have to do. When you really want to make something work that wouldn't necessarily work for a lot of people, you commit. You commit a thousand percent. And that's what Apollo does. And I love seeing it. Um, and having it be the coffin match and Grayson Waller going through the top of it and a Booker T going, it's over, it's over, it's over. And the referee's like, it's not over. You got to shut the lid. Oh, it's over. Booker T had some amazing calls. Booker T, I mean, <laughs> ladder matches are unpredictable. And you know what unpredictable means? Not able to predict. <laughs> and you're like, it's just great. Just just the, Booker T is raw emotion. Booker T is id. You know the ego, the super ego and the id? Booker T is raw id hitting us in the face. And sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need, there's nothing about Booker T that feels rehearsed. There's nothing about Booker T that feels choreographed. You don't listen to Booker T and go, oh, he wrote that line before the show. Booker T is raw emotion. Hit me directly from the heart with what you're seeing. And that's what you get with Booker. And it's enjoyable. I think he's got a great, because Vic is, is very much more the researched professional. So it's like when you've got Vic, who's like got all the stats and and who's got all the, the really sharp references and historical references and catchphrases and and nicknames and and knows everything about everyone and why everything's happened mixed with just the raw emotion of Booker T. I think that's great because there are a lot of people with NXT that are going to be watching these shows for the first time and they don't know the history. But Booker T is there to be like, yeah, that is how this is making me feel. That is why I'm enjoying this. So I I, I really like that that. You can see on these NXT premium live events the just the, just the the slow upward momentum that is happening. Each one gets a little better and a little better and a little better. And I think this one was more of a leap than the other shows have been. You can feel it in the audience. I'm very lucky in the sense that I get to see these events in the building and experience what the crowd is like. And I've been there for events where the crowd is like, not connected with the characters yet. And they're just not in it for whatever reason. And that's not the case anymore in that performance center.
The crowd is in it. The crowd is buying into every story. The crowd is buying into every character. Like it's 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 really cool to see and to feel. Um, and yeah, I, I I just I feel like NXT is getting to this place, and we saw it in the main event um, with with Braun Breaker, Ilya Dragunov, and JD McDonough. Who JD McDonough? I mean, dude, if there are two people, here's who I love in NXT right now that I'm like, yeah, everything they're doing. I think. Well, for different reasons, right? I think if I'm going, who do I put on the main roster today? Carmelo Hayes is the one. If I'm moving somebody to the main roster today, I'm bringing Trick with him. I think the tandem is great. But Trick and Carmelo going right up to the main roster, I'm ready for it. I'm there for it. Uh, Who do I bet on in the long haul? Who is the stock I invest in today? Because I know it's going to be 10, 20 times its value in a few years. That's Julius Creed. Julius Creed is that is is that guy. He he's just, I just feel so strongly that the years are gonna be real kind to him because he just gets better and puts new tools in his toolbox every time you see him. He's just he's and every time it's it's the moment for him to step up to the plate, he defies expectations again. Uh, and I think that people are starting to catch up with that, and I like to see it. And then who in NXT is the person that right now in NXT has me glued to everything they're doing, watching what they're doing? That's J.D. McDonough. J.D. McDonough is, and and why I like him so much, and I talked about a lot of the show with Denise Salcedo on her uh, YouTube channel right after the show. If you uh, if you YouTube Denise Salcedo, I... I uh, went right back to the hotel and did her post show after Halloween Havoc over the weekend. So that was fun. Uh, but JD McDonough is a guy who developed this new character coming over from NXT UK and and getting into NXT. And he had to, right? Because it's like, how do I immediately prove to the NXT audience that I'm a main event caliber superstar for people who may not be familiar with me? Okay, give them this character that they can sink their teeth into. And not only did he start this new character and, and and his new way of talking, but like everything about him changed. The way he looks at you changed. The way he walks changed. And most impressively, his wrestling style changed. His wrestling style now, now matches the character. And I just think that's so impressive and so cool to watch. So that's my guy right now. But I had so much fun on the pre-show. They said, you can dress up if you want to. And my philosophy was either go all the way or don't go at all. So with about six days notice, I put together the best damn Stone Cold Steve Austin outfit I could find. If you haven't seen it yet, it's up on the YouTube channel, WWE's YouTube channel. There's also a clip on the Not Sam Wrestling YouTube channel uh, if you want to check it out. Uh, This is how I opened the show. I realized that we'd be in the presence of Stone Cold Steve Austin here today. Well, I'm just kidding. It's me. It's Sam. No way. You had me fooled. I'm just excited. It's Halloween Havoc tonight. We've got an ambulance match. What? Ladder match. What? Weapons Wild. What? Spin the wheel. What? Women's Championship. What? Men's Championship. What? It's Halloween Havoc, and we're going to make history again. And we did. We made history with the best damn Stone Cold Steve Austin impersonator in the history of kickoff shows. An, An incredible feat. Knee braces, wrist tape, jorts, smoking skull championship. What? The whole thing. It was so much fun. Loved it. Appreciate uh, all the folks at NXT inviting me down, and, and hopefully I can join you guys for the kickoff show for Deadline coming up in December. 
but before we get to our interview, this week we've got uh, Brian Gewertz on the show. Brian Gewertz, uh, uh, head writer for like 15 years in the WWE, he's written uh, a book called There's Just One Problem, full of great stories. Uh, he works with The Rock at seven bucks now. We'll get into all of that. But first, let's talk about what the world is talking about in the world of, of wrestling, of course. Um, MJF did it again with a promo. Real interesting. You look back at AEW Dynamite this week, and to me, top segment of the week by a mile is a promo segment, a storytelling segment, a segment that had no physical contact whatsoever. But without even having the AEW champion, John Moxley, in the ring, added 25 layers to the match that MJF and Moxley will have coming up at the next AEW pay-per-view. Uh, MJF is just, he comes from a, a such a, a real place, which is interesting because he's in character all the time. You saw, you saw him, the interview that I did with him here in the Not Sam studio. He's in character all the time, but still it gets this realism out that most people can't do character or realism as well. It's really kind of incredible. And then you've got William Regal, who I've been a fan of William Regal for so long. Go back to the run that he had when he was the commissioner or whatever of Monday Night Raw and the King of the Ring. There was this moment in WWE in the, I think the end of the first decade of the 2000s where William Regal was quite literally the top heel and arguably the top performer in all of WWE and his personal issues got in the way and took him off TV for a while and he never got right back to that place. But like, dude, William Regal's potential has yet to be tapped. That's one of those where when WWE released him, it's like, how do you not have a place for William Regal in your organization? And he proved that uh, on Dynamite this week. MJF and William Regal are in the ring together and it was kind of perfect. MJF gets in there and he's getting booed and William Regal is getting cheered. And MJF says it's time to tell a story. And this promo is, I would say, in contention with the uh, promo that he told uh, leading up to the story that he told, really, leading up to the first CM Punk match or the dog collar CM Punk match uh, that he had, where he talked about the anti-Semitism that he was the victim of growing up. And that's where, that's where MJF shines, you know, and that's the side of MJF that I think when you're painting with broad strokes, you, we haven't really tapped into, but we are in a hurry. The, the side of MJF that we got in the interview that he did in the studio, the, the sort of part of him where it's like, yeah, I'm the best. Yeah. I'm better than you and you know it. Yeah. I'm, but it wasn't that easy for me. Yeah. I'm younger than everybody else, but I went through it coming up. And that's the story that uh, was told. MJF talked about getting extra work for WWE. And I'm assuming that he's talking about the Barclays Center. That would have to be the same extra work where the meme has gone all over the place of Samoa Joe shoving MJF dressed up as a security guard. And MJF is 19 years old. And he says that when he went in for extra work, he brought up Brian Myers and Pat Buck as his trainers. A little great detailing because then you know this is real life. Uh, training at Create a Pro. And 
he goes, I, I went and uh, not only was it extra work, but we all had tryout matches. And he says that he had a tryout match in front of uh, uh, Adam Pierce and Dean Malenko and William Regal and Arn Anderson. And they have their tryout match, whatever. And uh, MJF uh, is brought backstage by Regal. And they sit down in a room and Regal says, sell me on yourself right now. And MJF says he cuts a promo and he pulled it off. He did it. He nailed it. Boom. Regal says, that's great. You're you're good to go. How old are you? MJF says, I am 19 years old. Regal says, too young. Not going to happen, but keep me updated with your progress. MJF says, well, that's a bummer, but I will. He says every month he's sending him a match and a promo. Match and a promo. First month, this is great. Looking forward to the next one. Second month, good stuff. Looking forward to the next one. Third month was, Max, I'm a busy guy. I look at a lot of stuff. What about this footage that you sent me makes you think that I would hire you? And that's a rhetorical question, meaning don't bother responding to this email. And MJF says, I didn't just want to quit wrestling. I wanted to kill myself when I got that email, which is deep, cuts deep. And what MJF is doing is he's telling this story of being 19 years old and really good and clearly being the type of person whose potential could be realized because we've all witnessed it be realized now. But he's also telling this extremely relatable story of being 19 years old and wanting something so bad and working and working and working. And all you need is some positive reinforcement all you need is somebody in your corner. And this guy that you thought was in your corner tells you to go F yourself. Go get a clue. Don't bother me anymore. This is a waste of my time. And it's just all of your hopes and dreams come crashing down. And anybody that's had a, a dream in their life can relate to that experience. We've all been there. No matter how much success MJF has today, that thing that happened to him, that's the thing that we can all relate to. We can't relate to the Burberry scarves. We can't relate to the electric cars and the, and the, and the, and the Rolexes, the Louboutin red bottom shoes. We can't relate to any of that. We can't relate to being better than everybody else. But what we can relate to is wanting something so bad and working so hard at it and realizing that nobody's in your corner. And the person that you thought was in your corner is not there. And MJF told the story so well that when Regal went to respond, it was like WrestleMania 13, the crowd had switched. Regal became Brett and MJF, the Jewish rattlesnake, was Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I've been saying this for a long time. People go like this, who is MJF? I got a, a DM from somebody who was asking about MJF in, in, a, in a professional sense. How do we describe him? Like who, a lot of people are described, uh, he's like The Rock. He's like, I go, MJF is Austin. MJF is Austin right before he broke through. Because when you make these comparisons, he's not supposed to sound like him. He's not supposed to be a carbon copy. He's supposed to catch that vibe. And what that vibe is, is somebody that you connect with in a very real way. Somebody that is giving you everything that they possibly have. And somebody that is touching each member of the audience every single time they're out there. That's what Austin did. That's what MJF is doing. And that's what he did in this promo. And, and, and Regal comes back and 
He he talks about how hard it was for him to come up and see that, and I think it was deliberate. That is what we don't want to hear. Regal talking about, you know, you can't hit people anymore, so you got to make them tough. And I saw potential in you, and it was tough love. And that tough love BS is what we've all heard. The old guard everywhere in wrestling, in entertainment, probably in whatever job that you have, the old guard is, well, I had to deal with it, so now you have to deal with it. And the new guard is, why? Why are we continuing this cycle of trauma? Why are we continuing to treat people badly as if it builds character? It doesn't build character. It makes you feel better about the position that you're in. Hurt people hurt, and that's what you're doing. That's a very real life thing. That's something that people can relate to. And that's the story that MJF and Regal were telling. Regal was saying, bro, what I had to deal with compared to me sending you an email? Come on. And MJF is like, Regal, the fact that you had to deal with stuff should make you even more sensitive to this. It's not about what you had to deal with. It's about the fact that you had the opportunity to bring out the best in me. And instead, you used your power and you crushed it. And now you're telling me you did that. You didn't do that to build character. That's nonsense. People don't do that. Well, if I, if I make him feel like garbage, then he'll come out stronger for it. How many people come out stronger for it? And how many people wither away because of it. I would say you've crushed a lot more dreams than built them. I know in a real life way, in my experience, I don't look back on the people that shit on me and say, oh good, they made me stronger for it. I look back on the people that were in my corner and that were cheering me on and that were rooting for me and that believed in me from the beginning. Those are my people. And that's the story you're getting with MJF. If you don't think that they're turning MJF babyface, I don't know what you're watching. And I said that they were turning MJF babyface during his stuff with CM Punk. And I am 100% convinced myself that that's where this was going had CM Punk not decided to blow up the business in a press conference, that, that we were getting to a place where Punk and MJF were going to do a double turn. And then Punk goes on his press conference and, and blows the whole thing up and, and shifts all the attention away from MJF onto people that he's not even going to be in a rivalry with. And... Now we're back to square one and it's like, okay, now how do we get to where we were going? How do we get to this place where MJF is that baby face? And this is it. This is to me it. Now it's interesting. And, 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 and it's interesting because I think what really drove that home was Regal saying, you want to be a villain? And he turned his back to him and MJF put that ring on and MJF two years ago would have clobbered William Regal in the back of his skull. It was the same MJF that wanted to shake Wheeler Utah's hand after his match with Wheeler. 
but it was stopped by Stokely and the gang. This is where it's like, oh, there's this, this human side. It started to be sprinkled on during the CM Punk rivalry when MJF was talking about being bullied as a kid. A, a villain doesn't talk about being bullied as a kid unless he's ready to turn. Wheeler was step two. This is step three. It's a multi-step process, but it's brilliant and it's happening right before our eyes. Now, what's interesting to me about this whole story, though, is that it's adding tremendously to the MJF John Moxley match. If they keep going in this direction, they are going to walk into Newark, New Jersey, with John Moxley as a heel and MJF as a babyface. And that may be the intention. But what I wonder, what I'm skeptical about is this story is now the thing that is fueling me is you stopped me from my dream. And you go, oh, what was your dream? And it's working in the WWE. Nothing is better than working in the WWE. That, that was a thing that like, we're cheering this guy because we all know, oh man, he wanted to work in the WWE and nothing is better than working in the WWE and William Regal stopped it. And that's great for this story. But long-term, is it great for AEW? I don't know. Like, am I looking too deep into it? Maybe. But part of me is going like, yeah, this story is now about how MJF wanted to be in the WWE and William Regal stopped him. And it's like, when you're the competitor to the WWE, I don't know. I guess because they are the underdog still or positioning themselves that way, maybe it won't be as sort of illogical as I'm positioning it, but I mean, it's good for MJF. Either way, it doesn't matter. For, I mean, you know, if it's if it if it doesn't make WWE look stronger, then it's like it's fine. He's in AEW. If it does, that's fine too. Maybe he'll be in WWE at some point. But it's just interesting that 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 is kind of what this story is revolving around. Speaking of WWE and AEW, another story that broke over the week is that there are rumors that. CM Punk will not be back in AEW. That his that there's a negotiation going on for his contract to be bought out. Now, this speculation uh, fuel was put to the fire when on Dynamite there were references to the elite being made, and 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 it's kind of like okay, we find out Ace Steel was released from the company. Ace Steel doesn't work at uh, AEW anymore, and there are references being made to the elite, which makes us feel like the namesake of AEW may be returning, which makes us feel like maybe the other side of the fight, brawl out, is not returning. And the speculation, the rumors, the innuendo, is that the holdup right now with the CM Punk buyout conversation is non-compete. That CM Punk apparently wants a buyout on his contract without a non-compete. And AEW doesn't want to give it to him. When that conversation comes up, of course, it is, well, why would CM Punk want to avoid a non-compete? Well, because he would like to compete. What would that look like? CM Punk returning to WWE. I hear it. I've heard it. 
no, we can't do this. But look, to me, this is very similar to the NWO coming over. It's not exactly the same because WCW is out of business. But when WWE signed Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, and Scott Hall to bring the NWO to WWE, there was a lot of speculation, non-storyline, from people, from the internet, from everyone going, they are a historically, according to the internet, toxic force. You know, people were worried that the clique would start politicking, that Hogan would start politicking, that this is, they've been very divisive in locker rooms in the past. WWE doesn't have that problem now. Why would you put that problem here? And the answer is, well, no, we just don't allow it to be a problem. I think, and I'm maybe crazy, I've talked about it on the show before, I think that there is a place for CM Punk in the WWE. I think that because there is money to be made in wrestling with CM Punk. Money for a company, money for the performer, Phil Brooks, CM Punk. There is also joy to be had from wrestling fans seeing CM Punk in the right position. To me, the right position for CM Punk, and I am a complete outsider, uh, I have not spoken to CM Punk since he was on this podcast before he even got to AEW. I don't know. I don't know anything. I know as much as you do, maybe even less. But in my mind, I go, okay, you, 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 you can't kid yourself here. You have to go with the reality of the situation. And the reality of the situation is, historically, CM Punk does not stay happy in locker rooms. This is what we've learned from history. And whether it's CM Punk's fault or the locker room's fault does not matter. History shows us that CM Punk does not stay happy in locker rooms. Fine. Point two. CM Punk physically maybe shouldn't be wrestling very often. CM Punk had at least one, depending on what happened at All Out, we don't really know, possibly two, pretty serious, serious enough that he had to take considerable time off, injuries during his 13, 14-month run in AEW. Okay, so we take that into account. The other thing we take into account is that CM Punk is a major, major draw. So I propose to you what I would do with my plan of CM Punk being in WWE. Now, I don't know if he's injured. I, if he is injured, I don't know the severity of that injury. So I'm, I'm casting that aside because that is all hearsay, rumor, innuendo. This is what I would do. I go, okay, CM Punk is a major, major attraction. We all know the minute cult of personality hits, the fans are gonna go nuts. We all know the minute the t-shirt goes on sale, fans are gonna buy it. We all know the moment that that first match is announced or whatever, people are gonna pay for it. Tickets, pay-per-views, whatever. So my thing is, and I believe I've, I've, I've laid out this plan on the podcast before, I believe it now more than ever. My thing is, bring CM Punk back for three matches and a very limited number of TVs leading up to those three matches and then see where you are after that. CM Punk is... Hulk Hogan in 94 coming into WCW. 
CM Punk is Brock Lesnar. CM Punk is The Rock. CM Punk is any of these. CM Punk is a part-time guy. And the reason you do that is not just because like, oh, you know, physically, it has nothing to do, honestly. I thought of this about CM Punk before he came back to AEW. It's because he's such an attraction that sometimes in order to maintain an attraction's value, you keep them off the show. Pat McAfee, for instance. I don't think Pat McAfee should return to commentary on SmackDown. Not because he's not good. I think Pat McAfee is excellent commentary on SmackDown. Selfishly, I want to hear him on SmackDown every week. But I think that Pat McAfee has a huge show. He's on ESPN Game Day. He's a decorated athlete. I think that you bring him in a couple of times a year for big matches and you bring him in for those big matches and it's not, oh, our color commentator is getting off the desk to get into the ring. That's a big deal. It's mega media sports star Pat McAfee is wrestling for WWE. There's no reason why he shouldn't get the Logan Paul treatment. And the only reason that he might not is because he's on TV every week, right? So with that said, I think in order to keep CM Punk's attraction level high, try to make it so that every time he's in the ring, it's like the first time all over again. The reason that the Barclays Center popped crazy when Brock Lesnar came out on Monday Night Raw to attack Bobby Lashley a couple weeks ago is because Brock Lesnar isn't there all the time. Because it's still, every single time Brock Lesnar comes out, it's like, oh my God. And therefore, every time he wrestles on a pay-per-view, it's like, you cannot miss this show. Roman Reigns is doing it. Roman Reigns doesn't wrestle on TV, and when he does, I have got to tune in for this. At this point, when Roman Reigns is on TV for a promo, it's must-watch television. And that's the way it should be for CM Punk. I would, here's and here's the plan. I would bring CM Punk back in the Royal Rumble match. I would have Cody Rhodes, Roman Reigns, and CM Punk all in that Royal Rumble match. Make it huge. I would have CM Punk and Kevin Owens get into it in the Royal Rumble. Maybe Kevin Owens eliminates CM Punk. Maybe CM Punk eliminates Kevin Owens. Regardless of how you get there, because there's been back and forth on the internet and because Kevin Owens is so good, I go to WrestleMania with Kevin Owens versus CM Punk. How beautiful is that? Last year at WrestleMania, we get Kevin Owens versus Stone Cold. This year at WrestleMania, we get Kevin Owens versus CM Punk. Kevin Owens, so... That's two matches right there. The Royal Rumble match is one match with CM Punk. Maybe he shows up the Raw after the Royal Rumble to just say hello, and then that's it. And then as we lead towards WrestleMania, maybe March, CM Punk comes back on TV. Three weeks before WrestleMania, CM Punk is back on TV. We start setting up Kevin Owens versus CM Punk. He does a couple of TVs before WrestleMania, has his match with Kevin Owens. He's out. Then we start building up towards SummerSlam. He's on TV for a couple of weeks leading up to SummerSlam because SummerSlam, we do Roman Reigns versus CM Punk. And then he's out. And then we reassess. Maybe two, four, maybe six, seven episodes of television all year. Royal Rumble. WrestleMania, Kevin Owens, SummerSlam, Roman Reigns, and then out, and then reassess, see how everybody's feeling, see if everybody's happy, see if everybody's still making money, and be done with it. That is how I bring CM Punk back to WWE without taking on a lot of the risk 
that it seems like we'd be taking on, but I'm curious to hear what you think about it. Send me a comment or whatever. Tell me. Before we get to the interview, I also, with uh, Brian Gewertz, uh, I also want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about Bray Wyatt on SmackDown this week. I know, big shocker, Sam Roberts wants to talk about Bray Wyatt again. We had an excellent backstage promo from Bray Wyatt. This is the, the promo from Bray Wyatt I loved because it's almost like a follow-up to the in-ring promo that we got the week before. You're gonna start to be able to put the pieces all together and have this amazing Bray Wyatt narrative that is told throughout. So Bray Wyatt is still kind of himself, soft-spoken. He's backstage. His theme music is playing. His theme music is beautiful behind this promo. It's this nice build. Dun, 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 dun. And then once you get to that sort of almost operatic, do, 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 do. I think it might be the lead singer of Avenged Sevenfold on it. I'm not 100% sure. But uh, Bray starts going deeper into what he was saying in this promo. In this promo on SmackDown a week before, he's saying that that he all the fans brought him back. He appreciates all the fans bringing him back. Uh, uh, he appreciates all the fans reaching out. The fans saved his life. And here, he says he didn't get to finish. He says that he was happy being left alone. He was done. He was He, he didn't want the fans to say his name, but they did. And he was glad that they did. He was glad that they proved that he was wrong. He wasn't done. But then the way he's talking, instead of it being like, you reminded, he's saying you reminded me who I am. But when he was in the ring cutting the promo, it was like, you reminded me of who I am. And thank you for that. Because I was in a dark place. Now he's clarifying that. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm saying you reminded me of who I am. And that's bad for a lot of people. What Bray is saying is that by the audience calling his name and by the audience saying, we're not done with you and the audience saying, bring Bray Wyatt back to the WWE, Bray is saying, thank you. You brought me back. But now what I do, that's on you. Bray says, uh, along this journey, I'm gonna do terrible. I'm gonna do horrible, horrible things but I will never feel sorry for them. And I mean, it's haunting the way he says that. I'm gonna do horrible, horrible things and I will never feel sorry for them. And you're like, I believe you, Bray. What did I do? What monster did we just awaken? Bray says, I go where the circle takes me. And that's that red circle that we've seen on all of his tweets. That's that red circle that we saw around the hourglass in all the white rabbit vignettes. That's that red circle that's been a part of everything. Well, we've all been concentrating on the Wyatt Six. Who are the Wyatt Six? What are the Wyatt Six? Eh -eh. What's the circle? Is this all about the circle? Everybody's talking about faction this, faction that. Is the faction the circle? And is the circle a faction or is the circle us? He's a disciple of the circle. He he's a disciple, he follows the circle. It's not up to him anymore. I'm intrigued is what I'm telling you, okay? Because there's a lot of different ways that this could go now. But I think it goes back to what we've been saying this whole time, that, that everybody that's been like, 
looking at these other characters that he was previously, they've been barking up the wrong tree, dude. They're dead. He's following the circle now, Bray is. He's not in control anymore. This is not Bray's world anymore. And there's been all this talk about Uncle Howdy and, and is this mask Uncle Howdy? Well, an hour after the promo, I believe after a Ronda Rousey promo, as Michael Cole is 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 leading us into break, bringing the traffic professional that he is, the screen goes, gets staticky. And we see that mask again, that Bray mask that we saw at Extreme Rules. And it says, uh, never lie to the ones that you love. Never, 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 never lie to the ones that you love. And it's kind of like stuttering that and repeating it. And then it cuts out and we see what looks like a, a human face, right? But it almost looks like plasticky, you know? It looks like there's something not quite human about it, but I don't know. It looks like... It looked like a white mustache coming down. It looked like the human version of that kind of stone-looking mask that we've been seeing. And there's like a tipped hat with the brim shadowing the face. And he just says the word howdy, howdy. And I couldn't tell. I mean, it didn't sound like Bray's voice to me, but it was just the one word. And then it cuts out. And then it's back to Michael Cole sending us to break. And, 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 and here we go. But it's another segment where we get more questions than answers. I think what I walk away with is the fact that this Uncle Howdy or whatever this is, this masked character lives on a different plane than does Bray Wyatt. Bray Wyatt is no longer in control. And this has nothing to do with the past anymore. This has to do with the fact that we as fans did this. We brought this monster back. The monster was gone. The monster was dead. But we awakened him with our demands to bring him back. And now all this damage and all this blood is going to be on our hands. And it's going to be the result of the commands of the circle, whatever that is. I'm interested in finding out exactly what it is. It's good writing. And WWE is is always about good writing and good writers. Hey, Brian Gewertz is, uh, I would say, I, I mean, I can't imagine anybody that's had a run like Brian Gewertz. Brian Gewertz, uh, he started, he comes from, I think his uncle is a, tele, is a sitcom writer and his sister was uh, a writer uh, for MTV, gets him a job or something like that, you know, whatever. His sister helped him get a job at MTV. But he had this job at MTV writing. And it's when MTV was partnering with the WWE in 1999, not rock and wrestling, but uh, uh, rap metal and wrestling. And uh, The Rock comes in and Brian Gewertz is, uh, is, is writing for him. And he kind of strikes up a conversation with The Rock. The Rock likes him. Long story short, Vince Russo, and Ed Ferrara leave the WWE out of nowhere. It just, one day the call is made, hey, we're gone. You don't have us anymore. WWE needs writers immediately. Brian Gewertz is hired right after Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara leave WWE. Night one, he's in a car with Vince, Shane, and Stephanie McMahon 
driving from town to town. I mean, feet to the fire, right into the deep end, let's go. Brian Gewertz lasted in the WWE as a head writer, you know, I mean, I don't know if he started, but as a writer from then, from Vince Russo leaving. So Nitro was on the air and he was there all the way through the Raw guests, hosts and beyond. I mean, this is a guy who has written through multiple eras, the entire Ruthless Aggression era, uh, and, and then some. He was uh, uh, opposite Paul Heyman. When Paul Heyman was writing SmackDown, Gowertz was writing Raw. Uh, the, his book, There's Just One Problem, uh, is amazing. He goes so far. He starts when Russo leaves, so Nitro was on the air. And he talks about it in the interview. He goes so far. He was a consultant still for WWE when Roman Reigns said suffering succotash. I asked him about that and more. He's now uh, a big wig at Seven Bucks, the Rock's production company, and is one of the people responsible for producing uh, the new territory show on Vice TV that I hope you guys are watching. So much to get out of him. This is an interview I've been waiting for for a long time. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Gewertz. The Not Sam Wrestling Interview. At long last, let's welcome to the show somebody that I've been wanting to talk to for quite some time, somebody that was a head writer at the WWE from 1999 to 2015. He's now the senior vice president of development for Seven Bucks. He's one of the brains behind the show, Tales from the Territories, and the author, of course, of the book that I would hope by now everybody listening to this has read. If you haven't, you've done yourself a great disservice. Uh, it's called There's Just One Problem. Brian Gewertz, welcome, man. How are you? Great. Thanks, Sam. Um, well, as we know, I'm not great as the Mets. Yeah. I don't want to bring it up immediately, but yeah, this it's... is uh, painful. This is the first public conversation I've had since the uh, uh, vanishing of a 101 feel-good season. But all things considered, you know, could be worse. Yeah, I mean, like one of the things I, I I like people to leave having had a good time talking to me on shows like this, and I realized that after 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 the Mets lost, that my work was going to be sincerely cut out for me, <laughs> and maybe I can't take on all that responsibility. Maybe that's not all my fault. Yeah, well, no, I'd like to say it is not all your fault that um, the Mets <laughs> lost an excruciating three game series to San Diego. One they shouldn't have even been in in the first place because they should have won the division. But regardless, um, you know we have good uh, we have a good owner, um, good players. Hopefully next year this will be the start of something as opposed to the end of something. That's what it is. That's what it always is. It's the start of something. You thought you? I'm sure at some point you thought your your wrestling days were behind you, and now you're bringing professional wrestling to NBC sitcoms and producing documentaries about the territories that you weren't even involved in for Vice. The That's beginning, true. not the end, the beginning. Yeah, you never know how uh, how, how things are going to go in life. And uh, and, and thank you for mer mercifully uh, segging into uh, <laughs> shows because I could, I could <laughs> lament about the Mets for a good, you know, four or five hours. But yeah, we got Young Rock, uh, season three coming out on NBC November 4th and Tales from the Territories uh, just debuted on October 4th. It's really, really cool and exciting so, to see it. 
so when you're when you're doing, I mean, the Young Rock episode uh, that I think really caught like wrestling fans' attention was, of course, you know, Rock getting to the WWE and getting to see all of the superstars from '96 represented on television, seeing Luke Hawks play Stone Cold Steve Austin, and and you know, everybody was there, right? Was there was there a pressure that you felt to go look? The 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 key here is to keep people happy that watch sitcoms on NBC. The mainstream audience is who this is for. But this is really going to work best if wrestling fans are watching this going, oh, my God, this is perfect. This is awesome. Yeah, that, that, it was a very, very, um, it was very, very on the forefront of, of my mind, um, especially because that episode, specifically myself and, and Dwayne, uh, and and uh, Hiram Garcia, president of Seven Bucks, we were the writers of that episode. It was an episode that we kind of, you know, really pushed to write ourselves because this is now, okay, now uh, Uli, who plays 23-year-old, 24-year-old Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, is, is leaving, you know, Memphis. He's entering the WWF at 1996 locker room. And, you know, if it's not authentic to reality um you know it's not going to be it's not going to merit exactly of course but it needs to be as authentic as possible it needs to you know pass the smell test with wrestling fans wrestling people in the industry um you know watching it and going okay this is this is they're taking mindful notes and good care and making sure that this is has a basis in reality you know as opposed to you know, what you often saw in sitcoms, um, you know, when whenever a wrestler was involved, there would be somebody like in a Tarzan outfit and they'd be screaming, I'm going to kill you, you know, and that kind of thing. And it was bared no resemblance to what wrestling actually was. Um, and that's one of the you know, we're kind of the guardians of wrestling on Young Rock, seven bucks specifically me being down there in Memphis. Uh, I'm not there right now obviously because we got a big black adam premiere this week and uh i thought i'd be celebrating a wild card championship but <laughs> normally uh i'd be in memphis uh which is where we're shooting season three of young rock season two and one uh haven't taken place in australia before then and yeah well we we really and chavo guerrero was down there as well uh marty elias this year too where we're like really um you know, always, 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 and our and our producing partners, uh, Jeff Chang, Nanashka Khan, Jen Carreras, they 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 really defer to us when it comes to the wrestling. They want it right, even though you know it would be very, very easy to be like, ah, it's not a big deal. It's like you know, we're 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 playing to the general audience, as you said, but at the same time, the general audience, I think, wants it to be authentic too, and wants that behind the scenes, you know, POV that really only. Uh, you know, certain people on set can provide. So that's what we want to always strive to do. Yeah, and you have an incredibly unique perspective because like, I mean, I, although I'm sure like Colt Cabana playing the Brooklyn Brawler, he's probably dealt with the Brooklyn Brawler before being from that world. But like Adam Ray, for instance, who's uh, the comedian that plays, uh, or I guess he's an actor as well, plays Vince McMahon. Um, there were little things that I noticed that he was doing that was like, that, that's that's a Vince-ism, right? Like there's this sort of like, it's not about the the tonality, it's not about the voice itself, but it's just about the way certain things are said and movements are made that made me feel like, yeah, yeah, somebody that actually knows the character that is Vince McMahon off screen 
had their hands on this. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. yeah. yeah, Adam and I talk about Vince a lot, as you might imagine. And it's kind of like, you know, uh, Dana Carvey, who's a friend of Adam Ray's, um, you know, when he does George Bush, he's like, yeah, it doesn't, you know, if you like look at it in a vacuum, you know, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily look and sound exactly like George Bush, but it like captures the essence of George Bush. That's what his impression did to the point where like people, when they imitate George Bush now, they don't really imitate George Bush. They imitate Dana Carvey's George Bush. Right. Um, you know, it's the same thing uh, in a way with Adam, because, you know, he needs to have the presence of Vince and, you know, like subtle, subtle things like if he's on the, you know, slamming his hand yeah. down, you know, like that's, <laughs> that's the type of stuff that we talk about that he would do. Um you know, to really just just kind of give a, uh, you know, just the overall feel of the character and, and you know, everyone on set, by the way, between our, you know, uh, our Randy Savage and Pat Patterson and Iron Sheik and Andre the Giant, you know, they're all they all love good wrestling stories. They all like want to soak in as much of the characters as possible when it's possible. I'll get, you know, I'll get Michael Hayes on the phone uh with young rocks michael hayes it's like or it's really i wish i could have uh, listened to that conversation but uh it's really you know we have that ability so we definitely want to lean into it that's so great i mean i could only imagine right because as i was reading your book i was like there are there's just there are weird little parallels uh in the lives that you and i have led for instance uh the halloween before you started writing for WWE, which was Halloween 98 or 99, whatever month you start with WWE, uh, you were mankind for Halloween. And I started going through pictures, and I believe, while I wasn't quite ready to write for WWE yet, I was also mankind for Halloween the exact same year. Wow. And, and which is okay, all right, well, mankind was a popular character, but this is the one that I loved that you told a story about uh, being at Syracuse University and driving back four hours so you could be there live for WrestleMania 10. And that one hit me like a ton of bricks because immediately, and I hadn't thought about this since I was at Syracuse, but I went, oh my God. I left Syracuse and drove back to the city to sit in Madison Square Garden for WrestleMania 20. Wow. And did the exact same, like, and I was like, yeah, that's the same journey, except by the time I was there, you were, you were there with The Rock, right? Yeah, that was, um, that WrestleMania was Rock and Mick. Yeah. Uh, versus Evolution. Um, and yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, and that was, yeah, that was the WrestleMania where, you know, it's, as you know, too, there's so much of the stuff that you see, a lot of stuff you know, some stuff's forgotten about a lot of stuff, you know, lives in people's minds forever. Um, you know, and, and you're not, you don't have it until you get to the show sometimes and you don't even start like, you know, rock was there. I remember WrestleMania 20 and like, well, what can we do? What can we do? That's unique. And we're just walking around and we see that entrance way. And it's like, Oh, what if we do a promo from here where you like literally open the door and walk out into the crowd and the camera follows you and does a big, you know, wide pan and everything. And we're doing it live. And what characters can we get in the surrounding area? Let's get, let's get Morocco and Snooka. Let's get Hurricane and Rosie. Let's get, you know, all the, you know, Lillian interviewing all these people. So all of that. Yeah. Just happened to come together that afternoon as we were just like walking around MSG. Um, but yeah, it's re it's that's really really cool. It's a funny parallel, and uh, you know, WrestleMania ten that I went to, um, you know, that was that was an awesome 
WrestleMania, especially when you consider it was, you know, right after WrestleMania nine, which, you know, most people remember for, you know, Mr. Fuji deciding to uh, <laughs> have Hogan um, enter the match against a, a 20 minute working Yokozuna and lose the title. And, and even as a fan, I was just like, well, that didn't feel organic. Um, you know, in WrestleMania 11, which I also did a Syracuse road trip for in Hartford the year after, which had the LT match and everything. But WrestleMania 10, Owen and yeah. Brett, and then, you know, Brett, you know, winning, you know, his big match in the end and Owen coming out and the stare down. Oh, we were big, as you know, from reading the book, big Owen fans, Brett fans too. But like, you know, that was especially special because, you know, we had, we had been, you know, really ramping up for that moment. That's the reason we wanted to buy tickets and go down there is to see Owen and Bret Hart. And then sort of see, and then to see Owen win the match, which I don't think yeah. people, so I didn't as a kid see that coming at all. I guess in hindsight, it made perfect sense that Bret would lose the match and then steal the moment and everything. But like as a kid, I said, well, there's no way, like this is just, this is just a showcase for Bret, right? There's no way Owen beats Bret. And then to see it actually happen, especially in the way that it did where it wasn't cheating. I mean, it was lucky, but it wasn't cheating. It was, it was magnificent. Oh, perfect. I wasn't thinking about that either. Everyone was thinking Brett was going to win. Of course. You know, and it never won the big one at that point. And then of course, you know, as like, you know, you put on your Booker hat and like, yeah, Owen is now like, uh, has a legitimate claim to have been able to beat his, you know, his brother and is a sets up a and it's set up like, I don't know how many months worth of main events, you know, throughout, <laughs> America and the world, you know, when they took it on the road and the big SummerSlam cage match later that year, it was, it was really awesome. And yeah, that's, that, that's the fun part, you know, as you know, is like making those four hour road trips to yes. go to the big show and getting there and making your signs and, you know, just conversing with the people online as you're like waiting to get into MSG and all that kind of thing. It's like, it's really, really cool. It's the mindset I always tried to put myself in when I was writing the show as far as like, yes, you want to you want Vince to approve your storylines and everything, of course. And you want Vince to, you know, not go. This is how you've been spending your creative time. It has been a vast waste of energy (laughs) on occasion. But at the same time, you want you want to put yourself in the minds of those fans who are either watching on TV or you know, waiting online to like, you know, looking over the merchandise stand and trying to figure out which t-shirt looks cool and, you know, all of that type of stuff. And it's something that I always found to be, you know, especially when there were like no writers there at WWE, when they were very little, like fewer than four, that is what I considered my superpower because my mindset was like, well, listen, I don't have the experience of like the producers, let's say, who've been, you know, in the ring and on the road and are geniuses uh, and have been doing it for decades and decades, but they haven't, you know, spent a ticket money on a ticket for a WWE show in forever, if ever. Um, and I have, and I, you know, I've done that and did it fairly recently. So at least I have that mindset, which no one else does as far as like being in the office, but also essentially being not far from removed from, you know, a non working uh, fan. Yeah. When you're that big of a fan going in, how do you make sure that the stuff that you're writing, especially early, is not derivative? Like, how do you how do you not write like a fan who's kind of just fantasy booking based on stuff they've already seen versus a 
a person who's a writer of a television show coming up with new ideas? Well, you know, you have to have that mindset going in to, you know, write at this kind of elevated level because Vince will sniff out and I'm sure Triple H now will too, you know, anything that feels derivative or feels like, you know, we've seen this, you know, Vince had a famous, you know, saying, oh, that's wrestling, you know, when, <laughs> uh, you know, if you came up with something that he felt was like, you know, kind of done to death um, or is or is just, you know, again, repetitive or what have you, you know, the talent that you work with has a lot to do with that, too, because, you know, as you know, I mentioned in the book, every time I get with Rock, he his mindset was like, OK, what can we do that's never been done before? Like, oh, what what well, what if something you've never done before? No, no. What has never been done before in the history of the business? <laughs> you know, that's that was his like starting point as far as, you know, wanting to put a promo together. And a lot of the, you know, talent had that same mindset as far as like they want to stand out. They don't want to do, you know, you can pay homage to, to you know, stories from the past and like, oh, I saw Dusty do this once. Let's try it. You know, like that's really cool and everything. But if you're going to survive as a character, you really need to, you know, stake your own claim and cut your own path and really make yourself unique and make you can't be like a, oh, he's trying to be Roddy Piper or, you know, he's trying to he's doing a poor man's Ric Flair circa 1985 impression. Like you really need to um, make yourself stand out. Um, even if you're not a crazy flashy, you know, quote unquote gimmick, um, even if you're just like a, you know, regular person, uh, you know, in your persona, but you really, you need to have, I always gave the, I always gave the, the, um, the mindset of like, if I can go back in time to let's say high school, let's say sophomore year of high school, which for me is way too um, early in time to say out loud, but I'll say like 1989. Um, and I can talk smack to someone there and they had never heard of, you know, they they don't know of the wrestlers in the nineties and two thousands. So I could steal anyone's gimmick and, you know, like really, you know, uh, put someone in their place you know, imagine you know, talking like Stone Cold Steve Austin or talking like The Rock or talking like, you know, wise ass heel Chris Jericho or babyface Chris Jericho or Edge and Christian back in the day or anyone like that. Um, like that's when you know you have a character, like as opposed to, um, you know, I'll just give a poor example, a bad example. Uh, you know, like our, one of... Um, one of the, let's say the Basham brothers from, you know, the mid 2000s. Sure. You are, you know, Danny Basham go. And it's not, it's not a knock on them, you know, like that we didn't serve them well in terms of like, okay, they were part of JBL's cabinet and didn't give them much, you know, uh, stuff to work with. But in just in general, like if you, if you can't like have that distinctive voice, the playground back in time voice, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. um, then, you know, then you really, are going to be in trouble because you need to be able to be imitated by a uh by somebody in the schoolyard to be you know to, to to have your distinctive voice heard um and that's my long rambling way i should have thought this through a little bit more before uh explaining <laughs> it but i have thought about that before i always like oh yeah i can go like imagine if nobody had ever heard turn it sideways and shove it straight up your candy ass they go or, nuts they go nuts yeah. for it yeah <laughs> bottom line because stone cold said so like all that stuff um like that's so important to be able to like okay close your eyes imitate blank um if you can't do it 
or if what you say is just going to be derivative of like, when I become the champion, I'm going to like, everybody could say when I become the champion, Mm -hmm. you hear the two words. Ooh, yeah. You immediately know who that is. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's Roman finding acknowledge me now. Acknowledge me is a, is a, is a thing. Yeah, you could yeah. successfully do a Roman imitation right yes. now. Go back in time if you needed to. And you couldn't necessarily say that in his I'm the new baby face of WWE suffering suck attach. I'm going to, uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. That okay. infamous promo. As a, as a, as a, as a writer, right? Because obviously you didn't write that promo. But as a writer, I'm sure that you can, uh, I don't know, that you, you feel f- for people. The fact that Roman's... Uh, whole sort of it didn't work at the time baby face run is consistently summed up with suffer and succotash suffer and succotash roman so that's that's the one line that everybody points out you know somebody wrote that right i don't think roman came up with it so as somebody who had that job i do not think so no as somebody who had that job though do you go man, we all take stabs at things or man, you don't understand. They probably had a, had, had their back against the wall or how do you, how do you, how do you kind of see that? Well, I mean, I was consulting still and that must've been 2015 or before um, when that line came out. Cause I remember seeing the script <laughs> and I remember cause I, I, you know, during that time I would give notes on the script uh, and sometimes they'd make the changes and sometimes it'd be just like, this is what they want them to say. So Sorry. Uh, and I remember saying specifically, please, for the love of all things holy, do not have him say suffer and succotash. <laughs> There's no cool way to spin suffer and succotash, you know, unless you're just completely crapping all over it. Um, you know, he added the word son to it. All right. Or at least he gave it a little alliteration um, to try to make it sound cool. I give Roman all the credit in the world. He's like, oh, man, he's he's trying He's he's trying to make that work. But, you know, I think at that point, like that was a case there where and it's hard because I don't want to I don't know. I wasn't like, you know, again, I was I was consulting from home, so I wasn't in the arena. But there were times where I would be in a position like that. And sometimes you got to like you got to read the room a little bit. Like, are there bigger battles to uh, to fight? Uh, Or do you say, you know, in this case to Vince, like, you know, you just cannot have him say that. And I know, sir, you came up with it. And I know, you know, that like, you know, it makes him human. It makes him fun for kids. I don't know what the rationale was behind <laughs> it. In, in that particular case, if like you're arguing with Vince, um, you know, on like lose the suffering succotash, uh, and he's just obstinately saying like, no, damn it, he, he needs to say that. Um, you know, and then at that point for me personally, I would have, you know, probably said to Roman, like, hey, you know, once you step through the curtain, sometimes people forget their lines. You know, <laughs> you never, maybe uh, that just slipped your mind. Like, oh, yeah, I forgot suffering <sighs> succotash when you step back through the curtain. That might not be it might be bad, not be a bad thing to take the heat for forgetting it. Of course, the danger in that is like Vince doubles down and goes, all right, well, next week you're saying it twice <laughs> on the air, you know, like that kind of thing. That, those are the minefields you gotta have to navigate when you're uh, backstage at WWE Creative. <laughs> Which is so much fun to hear about. That's why the book is so great. Cause I think that there's like, as deep as, as, as fans, as deep as our perspective can go, it can only go so deep because there is still so much that we don't see. Um, were you, are you just a guy 
who's got a thick skin? Is this something you developed as a kid or when you were at MTV? Or is this something that you just realized that you had the ability to take on very quickly at WWE? Because just, I mean, just here, I mean, forget about the book, just in the way that you're describing your interactions, there would be moments, it sounds like, where it wouldn't be, oh, I don't think we're gonna do that idea. It would be, we're not doing that idea because you are an idiot. And it's like, that's that can be tough for some people, right? Yeah, well, you develop it a little bit at WWE. You kind of have to. I mean, the truth is, um, I would take any, like, even slightest slight or or disparaging remark, and it would stew in my head. Um, you know, I try my hardest not to sell it, even though there were many times I would sell it. Like, I got plenty of, <laughs> and I didn't even realize I'm selling it. I had plenty of side conversations with Stephanie McMahon mm -hmm. where she'd be like, you know, when you hear something you don't like and you do this eye roll, uh, it really doesn't come off as very, I'm like, oh, shoot, did I do the eye roll? <laughs> I feel like I did the eye roll. Like, the patented yeah, Gewurz yeah. eye roll? I didn't mean you know, to like, do that. You know, you said something and you were just like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, oh, I didn't even, uh, I got to work on that. That's true. Um, yeah, I, th there was like, it's funny. I would say I had and, and still do have sometimes, uh, you know, it ranges from thin to thick, depending on what it is. But at a certain point at WWE, um, the skin would definitely become thicker because you realize, you know, when you're first starting, everything's a matter of life and death and every angle and every line and every match that you propose. It's like you start clinging to that and, and really wanting, you know, taking personal offense if it's not used. And, you know, you know like I remember being, you know, very angry at, at certain points, like, you know, I, I turned in a promo and Vince would be like, that's not very classy. And be like, Man, you wouldn't know classy if you wore a monocle and a top hat and carried around the New Yorker with you. What the hell do you know about class? You know, and then just calm down. Yep. There's an opinion. There are, as Vince would say, there's more than one right way to do things. Um, so, you know, as the years went on, you try to. I wouldn't say I did this successfully every time, but you definitely try to, you know, hey, there's a brand new show next week. There's always going to be a new show. You know, if, it, just because, you know, this didn't work out the way you specifically wanted it to. And by the way, you're not the boss, so you don't have that power to make it exactly the way you want to. Um, you know, tomorrow, next week is a brand new show. So try to make it work then as opposed to going home and just, you know, and in some ways it's, 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 you know, nice that someone you, that you care so much and, and, you know, it's not just about ego, but you really want it to be, you know, cause you feel like that would have worked best on the show. And sometimes you've proven wrong. Oh shoot. You didn't have to do it that way. That way is great. And sometimes of course, and those are the times you remember, uh, <laughs> You know, I remember like like Vince, by the way, was the same way. I remember at one point there was a uh, there's a vignette with Snoop Dogg and 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 uh, Santino. And I think Santino's dressed like Charlie Brown for some reason, probably because Snoop has a dog attached to his name. And it was, you know, some stupid funny. backstage, <laughs> funny, stupid vignette. And I remember I was insistent on ending it with Santino saying good grief. <laughs> you know, would say. Yeah. And Vince is like, not for it at all, but he's like, all right, if that's what you're saying. And we did it. And Santino said, good grief. 
It got no response whatsoever. You could hear a pin drop. Um, maybe they were just still contemplating why is this grown man dressed as Charlie Brown? Uh, but I remember Vince finding me and is like, I knew it. I knew it wouldn't get a pop. I told you. Like, All right. Well, leadership by example. Let's not be petty. Uh, but yeah, sometimes sometimes that happens. You just gotta you just gotta move on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's it's I feel like it's life advice. You know, I I I, I was there for a pre-show once, and there was something that had happened. And one day I'll tell the whole story. But one of the people who's not there anymore came up to me and said, "Hey, Sam, just looking out for you. There's a little bit of heat on you for this." Which already you're like, "What? What? Huh? What? Yeah. I just got." It. And he's like. But he, and this was the advice, and this is the advice I've taken with me way outside of wrestling. He goes, just no selling baby face and you should be fine. And it's like, that's literally, that's not for wrestling. That's for just about every scenario in life. If you no sell and baby face or just smile and be nice and polite, it's like did, nothing happened. It doesn't exist. That's true. That's, that's the way you're supposed to be. But, you know, if you have any sort of human <laughs> vibe to you at all, right? <laughs> you know, like they say, you know, you got to eat shit and like the taste of it. Like, there's just not a natural em emotion that people have. But some people there, um, and, and maybe it's the same person you're talking about. I don't know, because he's not there anymore, but was the master of that. Mm -hmm. It was like anything. It would just smile and be like, yep, no problem. Um, and that's very great. That's a great attribute and everything. But you also got a kind of a sense of like, does this person feel anything inside? Right. Or are they like, <laughs> that is just like robotically, uh-huh, smile and say, babe, no cell baby face, no cell baby face. It's like, yeah, in some cases, okay, we're going to have this entrance first instead of the entrance that you want it to be first. Great. Smile and baby face. If it's something that's like you truly feel passionate about, that that was what always what I was, you know, the wave I was riding and navigating at WWE was like, we want you to be passionate. We want you to have, you know, your strong voice. We don't want you to be a yes man. But you also have to convey your ideas in a respectful way. And you can't, you know, you need you can't be like showing people up or need, you know, that kind of thing, which is much easier, I think. Well, in theory, is much easier now. Uh, on the last vestiges of my 40s than it was, you know, when I was in my 20s and early 30s, because, you know, you're just, you know, full of piss and vinegar and you want to make your name. And you're also, you know, a a quote unquote, you know, regular person in a sea of giants and 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 so much, you know, a energy that comes, you know, if you if you don't kind of try to match that energy, you could you could really be left behind and left in the dust. So you know, it's it's kind of hard to be like a passive smiling yes and no sell, but it's also very vital that you do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's such a labyrinth of uh, you know conflicting emotional, mental um, notes that you always have to have in your head. But you know, you just do it. Yeah, yeah, it's just reality, and then you get out of it, and you're like, "What the hell just happened for the last 15 years?" Um, <laughs> yeah, but it, your point, though, it does apply in the real world too. Yeah, you know, there's plenty of battles on set or you know when you're giving notes on a show or whatever it's like like yes not everything needs to be like this life and debt like you know what some some of these points you're going to get some of these points you're not going to get don't take it personally if you know a note that you give or something or, or what have you or joke or whatever isn't going to be used 
um, you know, you got to rise above that because for the betterment of the show and for the betterment of your own well-being, um, you know, it, you're just going to lose your mind if you are going into battle on every single little thing. It's 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 important to prioritize. I loved uh, in the book, I felt like there was this nice sort of throughout, sprinkled throughout this full circle relationship with Triple H that I thought was really nice, that it was really clearly not great at the beginning. And then by the end, it's like you both, you've developed this respect for each other and everything. And it was just, I, I don't know, there was just something, there was something great about that, right? Because that's what you want. That's what, the, it, it put a bow on it for me. But what I loved, right? Because there are impressions that you hear that just become the impression, right? The Christopher Walken impression, like everybody kind of does Jay Moore's Christopher Walken impression or whatever. And I feel like there are so many Triple H impressions that are based on that rock promo where he just says, ah, uh, between every word. Like I remember seeing that as a fan and going like, that's, I never even noticed that that was a thing. But I remember it hitting me so hard as a fan that that became like the go-to Triple H impression no matter what. So the fact that not only did you kind of come up with it, but maybe my favorite story in the whole book, that The Rock made you pitch the Triple H impression with Triple H in the room was just about the greatest thing I'd ever heard. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was... That was pretty early on. And I think that was in 2000. And, uh, you know, the stage being set for that with us coming up with the idea for the promo, me pitching to him doing the Triple H voice and then pitching it to Vince, which normally wouldn't be would, would be easy. But when we went into Vince's office, which at the time, this is pretty incredible to consider. The writing team was so small that the writers shared an office with Vince. <laughs> The writers didn't get their own little office until 2002. We would share our office with Vince. So we would go in. And at that time, Triple H and all of DX um, and Stephanie were all there. And Rock was setting up the promo. And he's like, oh, you're going to love it, Hunter. Yeah, I go in and I say, you know, Triple H, every time you open your mouth, you sound exactly like this. And then he stops and goes, Brian, go ahead, do the voice. <laughs> me and like, well you have to do it in tv we should hear how you do it he's like but i'm learning from you when you do it and like vince is like damn it brian do the damn voice you know so yeah i put on the spot with like you know eight people in the room i think the producers of the match were in the room too um and you know and my problem back then which i didn't really realize at the time was it wasn't so much coming up with like oh here's a way for the rock to insult the character of triple h it was the fact that whether through misunderstanding, thinking that Triple H did his own thing or through intimidation or through whatever, I would never approach Triple H with, oh, well, here's something you could say to The Rock. It was always one sided. Right. And so now in hindsight, how it's like this little MF, he's always coming up with ways to insult. And I get it. He's a heel. He gets insulted by baby faces. But at the same time, um, you know, if you're such this um, great writing talent that you seem to think you are, well, where's my material, you know, for my opponent? You never come up with me with that. And then it took me a while for me to realize, which should be kind of obvious, like, yeah, I could I could understand that point of view. Um, but yeah, like you said, I'm, re I'm really, really happy. You know, it, it it doesn't really work if you're working at a company for 15 years and, you know, you're just like, 
you know, antagonistical relationship with a certain person um, who you respect, but also, you know, don't connect with, at least at the beginning, uh, I'm really, really happy that, you know, that that relationship on my part matured um, and was able to have like that mutual respect grow. You know, I'm going to Raw later tonight. I'm going to I'll be happy to see Triple H, you know, whenever whenever I see him, you know, uh, it's always like it's like a I I don't want to diminish, you know, actual, um, you know, people who've who've, uh, I I don't even want to say it's so ridiculous, but it's basically like it's obviously not going to war or anything like that. It's not even close, but it is similar in the sense of a shared experience that only people who actually experienced it can relate to. Um, So like, that's the type of thing, you know, anyone who's worked in that environment under the microscope on live TV for so many years, um, you know, if at a certain point, um, a mutual respect, you know, just has to develop. Uh, otherwise, um, something has gone really, really wrong. So uh, I'm, I'm really glad it did. And I, and I think, by the way, and I know you're, we're going to get to it, but, you know, I know like the, the Tales from the Territory show. Yeah. Uh, that we have on the air now on Vice is something that like Triple H being a huge, huge old school wrestling fan and fan of the territories himself. um you know, I, th- I think he finds it pretty cool. I think that we're doing that show. I think it's cool that you're doing that show because, I, first of all, I think it's cool that, and I, I don't think people have really wrapped their heads around the fact that the guy in charge of WWE is a wrestling geek now, right? Like, it's it's a guy who's who's grown up with this and is passionate about, is a wrestling fan. Triple H is a wrestling fan and, like, and, and a historian of this stuff. And I think that that's, that's really, really cool. But I also think the Tales from the Territory show is so great because, like, and I think it was, like, the, the Memphis episode's great. The Kaufman episode is fantastic because you get to hear from Lawler's perspective, and there's just a lot of new insight, believe it or not. But, like, the show, the episode that I knew, this is not like the other storytelling shows. The AWA episode is out of control. <laughs> like, it is totally out of control. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and it's important too. Uh, you know, because like Mad Dog Bashan, you know, hanging out of a of a plane while in the air, <laughs> you know, those aren't the stories that get like repeated every raw anniversary and right. or SmackDown anniversary and that type of thing. You know, um, whether they have the library or not, it, it, I we love to be able to you know get those stories and like put it on you know, a national platform like it is now, you know, with, with AWA. Um, it's certainly like plenty of stories um, that, you know, you heard about in the locker room and to actually hear Ken Patera, you know, tell his McDonald's <laughs> window story firsthand and have other people kind of question it like right then and there. It's like really, really fun to hear and then actually see reenacted. Um, you know, I'm, we're so we're so thrilled with this series um, as we get into, you know, the other episodes coming up, you know, with world class mm. and Polynesian Pacific, you know, from from Dwayne's uh, grandmother and grandfather um, and Stampede with Bret Hart and Abdul Butcher. I just watched a cut of the Florida episode, you know, that has Kevin Sullivan and, and Jerry Briscoe, uh, you know, amongst others. Um, it's just like 
you know, if you're an old school fan of the territories, you'll definitely appreciate it. If you're just a modern fan of, of WWE or AEW and really don't know, you've, you've kind of seen maybe a story or two in a shoot video or on a website or in an old, you know, classic after magazine or something like that. Um, to actually see these now come to life, I think it's a real treat. Well, yeah, that's the th what it is. And the, st the stories come to life. Like, it's like, it's no longer just, you know, I saw somebody tell the story on a shoot interview or I seen pictures of it in a magazine. It's the way they're describing the stories. You know, there's a whole round table of people. Oh yeah, I was there and adding detail to it. And then with the reenactment, all of a sudden you're like, oh wait, this really happened. Like this isn't this isn't a legend of some. This is a thing that happened in that guy's life. Yeah, it's it's so it's so cool to see because you know it, all of a sudden you look up and you know in my mind like the seventies and eighties and and even like the early nineties like oh yeah that wasn't too long ago and then you actually like do the math and you stop for a second you stop yourself and go wait a second this was like. 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. Which, when I, you know, compartmentalize that and like that would be the equivalent. Like I'm working at WWE in 2000 and we're talking about like stories from like the 50s and 60s, which seemed like ancient history when I was there, you know, at the time. And now it's like you got to be able to be able to like the perfect sweet spot to tell these stories with people who still who live them and, you know, are, are thankfully available to, to speak on, on on the show. And even, you know, the people who have passed on to be able to um, tell their stories, you know, at least one secondhand, if not firsthand, if they weren't there, um, you know, is, is really cool. And, and, you know, you might not be able to do that 10, 20 years from now, but you can do it now. Um, so it's something that like, um, you know, it really is a, a treat for for wrestling fans. And, and we're all wrestling fans, you know, myself, The Rock. Hiram Garcia, like everyone, Danny, everyone at seven bucks. It's like we want to and we do, obviously, there's a giant movie coming out this uh, month um, that Black Adam has nothing to do with wrestling. Mm -hmm. There's lots and lots, almost every movie project, you know, save from, uh, you know, fighting with my family um, and almost every television project, um, you know, is pretty non wrestling based. But we also feel like if there's a good wrestling project that we can you know, attach ourselves to as producers and help create and help grow and help bring to life. You know, we definitely want to be in on that. Yeah. And I think that too, like, and I was talking to Evan Husney about this a few weeks ago that like, I think there's such a value to capturing these stories. And like, it, to me as a fan, like these things should be preserved as historical documents and they, and they should be put on shows like this that will be forever things. These docu shows, whatever you want to call them are things that will last forever and it'll make it so the stories don't just kind of fade away or get muddled through generations of telling them and that that hasn't always been the case with wrestling and I feel the same way about like what we're talking about with Young Rock where like yeah you'd watch Boy Meets World and Vader would be on it and Vader would be portrayed as actually having a problem with his opponent which I don't think draws new fans in because everybody watching knows that that's nonsense but I think that when Young Rock is able to go behind the curtain and actually kind of go, this is what the business of wrestling is. Now, all of a sudden, I'm not getting treated like an idiot. And I'm kind of I'm kind of into this. If you're going to be able to draw new fans in, I think that's the way that it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, first of all, I should point out um, that that Vader being on uh, Boy Meets World uh, led to 
me being able to get a last row ticket to WrestleMania 12. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> My friend John was a PA on the show and he asked me to get a ticket. Somehow we got our tickets. My friend Jason brought his, I would like a Mantar sandwich sign. Um, doesn't make any sense, but no. you know, remember these things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that like, again, I, I, I kind of, I should make myself a, a fake badge um because with with wp written on it uh standing for wrestling police yeah <laughs> because i'm usually the one like barging like uh oh what did we say wrong now <laughs> uh well you know rock would say he's not going over with the fans he's getting over with the fans. yes facing the fans in a match he would be going over but he's if he goes over that means hopefully he gets over and is over <laughs> He's which working the gimmick, but he could also grab a gimmick to hit someone with. Yeah. He's like, you know, and by the way, a person could be a gimmick and that's a totally different yeah. thing. Oh yeah. This guy's a gimmick. Yeah. He's, he's a gimmick. Working his gimmick. Yeah. You know, it's a whole, it's a, any, you know, and it's like, oh, well, does he have a chair or something? Can he just use a gimmick? There's a whole like, uh, you know, separate language that, you know, I'm, I'm usually there to translate because there was a stretch um, and by the way, the, the writers of Young Rock are also huge fans. They they watch, you know, countless videos, you know, on YouTube and, and are always, you know, open to questions and everything. But there was a little streak they had going, uh, which we laugh about now of like every iteration of the word over was the wrong <laughs> use of <laughs> over five and overs. Like, no, it's did we get it? This like not exactly um now i think they speak uh over and wrestling and and you know certain terms uh pretty flawlessly yeah do you really think that al snow was the worst name for a wrestler that vince mcmahon had ever heard <laughs> uh i mean that's a trap that here are two traps that that starting writers fall into at wwe mm -hmm. and forgive me because apparently uh Apparently my hard line is going off. I don't know if you can hear that. I did hear that. Okay. Yeah. And it's like, what's that sound? Me. Yeah, I know. Again, I'm a relic. Um, <laughs> but they're the two. I, I don't even know who's uh, calling. It's a spam. call. This is like, this is history in a way. Yeah. Because, you know, people don't have hard lines anymore. Um, all right. It's finally stopped. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> the two, the two traps that people fall into when they first start writing at wrestling. Uh, first is getting addicted to cheap heat almost immediately because that's the easiest way for you to get like, Oh my God, 20,000 people responded to something that I wrote. I'm like, well, yes, that's the good news. The bad news is it doesn't really take a lot of brains going to Boston and go like, man, unlike the Bruins, I'm going to win a championship. Boo. You know, so you really, you need to treat those things very cleverly and, and try to put a spin on it that, you know, would make it entertaining for someone who has no vested interest in either of those fans. Um, you could write a whole separate book on, on cheap heat and the wonders of it, uh, the positives, the negatives. Um, but the other thing is becoming friends with wrestlers too quickly um, to the point where, you know, Vince and, or Hunter or whoever can can sniff it out and be like, oh, OK, I see this guy in my case, you know, I'm buddying up with Al Snow. I, I headed off with him when we were shooting these vignettes with him and Steve Blackman back in the day. Um, Al's a great guy and he's very funny and personable. And, you know, I would push Al and Al Snow matches to the point of being very detrimental to Al himself because it's like, ah, oh, this, this fucking guy and his Al Snow obsession, you know, like, 
to the point where it was just like, will you please stop pitching Al Snow? And I think the fact that I was pitching Al Snow so much, probably, you know, somewhere in Vince's head as we were making a drive in the Carolinas, I think, was like, God, it's kind of, what is his obsession with Al Snow? Al Snow. <laughs> anyway. And then just blurting out loud after the conversation about Al had ended 20 minutes ago, like there's no name in professional wrestling worse than Al Snow. I'm like, boy, I have uh, really done a disservice to this person I'm trying to help. Oh, I just love stories like that. Because also I was such an Al Snow fan. I literally, I still have it here. It's what I, I use it to focus cameras now, but I got this for my birthday. Oh, nice. And it's, uh, yeah, my mom went out and found a mannequin head because I was such an Al Snow fan. <laughs> I don't know if she got the uh, Who Wants Head double entendres yeah, or anything that, like that. Yeah, that's something but... I'll let you work out, you know, <laughs> your therapist. But that is, uh, that is very cool. And, you know, Al had basically, you know, the, and he still had the What Does Everybody Want, you know, the theme music and everything. But when I started... Yeah, like head was still part of his gimmick, but we were trying to do, you know, other things with him. That's why the stuff with with Steve Blackman, head cheese, um, you know, I pitched the idea of him coming out in a different European outfit um, every time he was defending the European title. You know, again, just to make it entertaining. It's like a it's a cold match between Al Snow and Viscera, let's say, you know, on on SmackDown. Well, what can we do? Well, what if. Al is celebrating Luxembourg because he is the <laughs> European champion. All right. And then we like, all right, let's get all these props and magic. And like, let's uh, have him come out and lederhosen one day and all this type of thing. And Al always, he always like played it to the hilt perfectly. I'm glad I could, you know, in the midst of accidentally torpedoing, you know, his <laughs> ending with Vince that we could like actually sneak in some good stuff along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, what's important. Um, you, your, your, your run is like so incredible because I don't think that at the time most fans were going like, okay, the same kind of creative forces around the end of the Attitude Era are, you know, there are, there are crossovers all the way into like the guest host era and, 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 and all this. Do you think that, I feel like the guest host era, I say respectfully, is not necessarily looked at as favorably amongst fans with some of the other eras that you were involved with. Uh, are there some gems that people are missing buried in that that raw guest host era? Oh, definitely. And, you know, as, as you know, I, I dedicated a whole chapter to the guest host era. Of course. It's, it's amazing that it lasted for like almost, a, almost over a full year. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is crazy to think about. Um, you know, there, there were, you know, every, I think everyone is kind of, in agreement on the best shows from that era. Mm. Most people liked the Bob Barker episode a great deal. Um, they liked Hugh Jackman. They liked uh, Mike Tyson. Shaquille O'Neal was really good. Um, you know, Ozzy Osbourne, uh, people liked. And, you know, then there was the, you know, the anytime, you know, even Seth Green, when he kicked it off, that went really well. Um, but, there, there are times, I guess, well, first of all, as you know, there, there's no way, the, the whole idea was was born out of how could we just take a break from the heel GM character? 
Um, and that segged into well, what if it was a different legend every week who was the GM? And that went to what if it was a different celebrity every week? And then that turned into well, what if we're just like Saturday Night Live only better? Um, only is, better. <laughs> only better. Yeah. <laughs> What what are the what is what is the SNL people done? For the world? <laughs> yeah, Brian, I know you always wanted to write for SNL. What if we could do it? Yeah, but better, better, because <laughs> we have Jerry Springer doing a "Who's the Father" segment with the Bella Twins. <laughs> um, yeah, that was it. Was you know, th- those were the gems I think, but they're also just a lot of fun. In uh, you know, that's the stories of telling in the book of like the backstage, behind the scenes stuff. And I hey, I got to like meet and become friends with Dr. Ken Jong, you know, uh, yep. in the, from the Jeremy Piven episode who, you know, very bravely, you know, agreed to get himself thrown out of the ring, uh, from John Cena and was assured by everyone that he would be caught safely. And he was caught, but I don't think he landed safely as his head smacked against the steel, uh, you know, entrance way. And he had to stitch himself up and just, like, that's the thing, like the pacing, like waiting for Dr. Ken to come out, waiting for Ken to come out and going, oh my God, is he going to be pissed? I thought I had this brand new friend. Now he's going to hate me. What's going to happen? Is he going to badmouth WWE to everyone he knows in Hollywood? Or is our reputation going to be sunk? And then he comes out and is just like so full of, you know, adrenaline and positive energy. And he was like, that was awesome. And apologizing to me and like, you know, like, I'm so sorry. I didn't take that bump. Right. And like, Ken, no, we're, I mean, personally, we're glad you're not suing all of us, but (laughs) also glad you're okay. And, and, you know, are happy about this. Um, You know, it's like those little things. I, I think the, uh, I think the guest host era was probably, I think it was an idea that was, you know, if you like combine all the really good guest hosts, I think you'll get like a good let's let's be generous. Let's say a good two months worth of television. Um, but the issue was it was 12 months. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's probably. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say eight. Eight is fair out of. 50, 52, yeah, 8 out of yeah. 52 is pretty good, right? Yeah. And, yeah, and then there were some that were, you know, and then ultimately, you know, yeah, and again, as I wrote in the book, when, when David Hasselhoff in the UK, you know, when he had all these, Hasselhoff is great. I mean, he like, you know, at this point, Dave Kapoor, uh, you know, was one of the former writers of WWE, the former Runjan Singh of the great Kali fame. Um, he'd come up to me because Dave is, as you know, like, well, you know, the friendliest, most affable person and he's not faking it. He just is. Absolutely. Very, Absolutely. Yeah. Great hang. And he'd come up to me like, Hey, Brian. Yeah, man. He, so Hasselhoff wants a group of people to be hanging out in the parking lot, chanting Hoff, Hoff, Hoff. <laughs> And then he gets out of his big truck and then they follow him into the arena all the way in the ring and they're chanting Hoff. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> and then he's got to somehow make the intercontinental title match at SummerSlam. Like none of this makes sense anymore. The, the Hasselhoff show was when Vince finally said, okay, these uh, guest hosts no longer have the power to make matches. Um, they're just going to be there. Uh, and that's when you saw like a turning point. That's when it all started to wane a little bit where it's like they'd have their one segment, but it wouldn't be like we'd go into their guest host office and then people would be arguing and they'd make a match and that kind of thing. Um, because it was just like a very, very unfair position to put them in, especially the non-wrestling fans 
who had to now learn all this exposition and, you know, but it's going to be a no disqualification match, but you got to remember, you know, it's going to be taking place this Sunday night live on pay-per-view right? on the WWE network and all, all that kind of thing, where it's like, I just want to come in and have fun. What am I doing here? Um, I have so much information to give um, <laughs> that, that ultimately, you know, it kind of fizzled and then changed. And then it's like, Hey, if a celebrity happens to be on the show this week, great. But now they don't have the onus of, you know, having to book matches and be in charge and remember a lot of things, which is the way it should have been in the first place. Um, and it never should have been an era to begin with, but it did. And, um, you know, somehow we all survived. The Nexus angle, as cool as that that first thing was, it's kind of you know one of those. The Nexus is the is the is the example for angles that start super hot and just like whoops missed it and it doesn't end the way it should end. Was that one where you were like, I don't know if we should do this or yeah, on paper this makes sense, and then upon execution you're like oh wait yep shouldn't have done that it's it's hard when sometimes you know that's the that's the uh the pit pitfalls and perils of booking by the seat of your pants sometimes sure sometimes you can have and and vince you know to his credit he pitched the whole nexus angle at the beginning i remember watching i'm like is he just making this up as he goes or has he thought about this but he thought the, all those guys and the giant attack and, and then, of course, there's stuff you can't predict, like them firing Daniel Bryan after the, you know, the Justin Roberts, you know, choking incident, what have you. But then that led to Daniel coming back. Um, I know there was a lot of internal debate as far as, um, you know, should Nexus go over in the big SummerSlam match or not? And, you know, a lot of voices, producers, talent, everyone had a say in that. Um, I, you know, I think you could look at it back in hindsight and be like, well, Nexus was supposed to be an entity to be feared and to be reckoned with for some time. They probably should have went over in that match as opposed to losing because like, you know, it's like their aura of invincibility, you know, takes a big hit when they come back. And even though it was a great feel good moment with Daniel Bryan coming back and everything. Um, and you have to have a happy ending baby faces prevailing at some point. Um, but that might've been a bit too early. Um, and, and that's again, one of, the many like, OK, great. You know, you have a hot beginning. Uh, there's so many, you know, like, you know, the much reviled for good reason. Invasion angle had a super hot beginning. Yes. And when ECW and WCW joined forces that night and I believe Cleveland, um, you know, that was super, super hot. But that was also the perils um, of having, you know, two shows a week, three shows include heat, four shows if you will the pay-per-view of like, well, we don't really, we're going to map this out. We'll go as we go. Um, but right now we got to go and do it because if you wait on the invasion, if you wait a year, it's not going to have the same impact as it would be if you do it right now while the iron's hot. And we have no idea which talent are uh, you know going to be eventually joining us. So there's no guarantee you could do it ever. I just bought WCW. We're doing invasion. Here are our players. Go. And, you know, you got to you got to navigate that. You got to see how the audience responds to it. You got to see sometimes, you know, in the midst of, you know, a great Booker T is going to make this great, you know, uh, run in King of the Ring 2001. And then unfortunately, you know, Austin gets injured during it. And so now like that will change the whole dynamic. Sure. Uh, that will lead to Austin and Angle, you know, having these very memorable vignettes with Mr. McMahon 
that people still remember to this day. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where like, yeah, it's, um, it's difficult sometimes uh, when, when to have a long-term angle to know the end of it when you start, because there's so many variables as far as like, well, who of the group is really going to like stand out and get over and how will the audience respond to it? And sometimes the baby faces they're going to have to have, um, you know, long angles with get hurt and that changes the whole dynamic. Um, but in general, um, I always, you know, I was kind of like the, uh, the annoying, you know, person in the movie, you know, being like, well, excuse me, sir, before we do this, could we just sit and talk about the logistics of the situation? Like, no, damn it. We're men of action. <laughs> we got to go in there and do it now. I'm like, okay, but we don't really have a plan to end this. You know, it's like one of those things. And hopefully, you know, the dynamic now in WWE, it's a lot more structured. Some say it's a good thing. Some say it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing that, you know, angles are thought of more. I know they just hired a new director of long-term storytelling, which which would have been a, a great thing, you know, back in the day for a lot of these angles. And in fact, they did try to have people like that at some point. Um, and I just remember, you know, their ideas not being very re received very well. And it's not necessarily because they were bad ideas. It was because I know it, that is the certain people that I'm thinking of, you know, as they're going on on this and then a month four, this happens, then a month five, this happens. And I'm sitting there in the room being like, oh, my God, Vince stopped listening after month one. <laughs> this is not going to work. Um, but, yeah, it's a whole new it's a whole new dynamic now. Yeah. Yeah. I also uh, uh, in the in the book, I love uh, the Michael Cole stories. But the thing that I loved was the text you included from Michael Cole, because it's somebody that is you know, spent some time around Cole. I thought that that text you included, there's just something about it, just the way he, it is, that's who Michael Cole is. The text that he sent you at the end, that says, I don't give a shit, it happened, LOL. You can write whatever you want. Like that's, yeah. I feel like Michael Cole is this, is like the, whoever the Game of Thrones character is that walks through the fire and just keeps going and it does, like nothing it just keeps going and 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 does what he's there to do. I loved it, and I also and then uh, of course, I mean, I also loved the fact that he had to use the the, the plane and the, <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was great. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, talk about no selling and smiling. I mean, like you know, if anyone has been able to you know navigate and survive and come out stronger on the other end, the 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 perils and pitfalls of life backstage in wwe i mean i'd like i'd love to hear the michael cole book and or the oh. story one day um sean coltard another syracuse grad yeah uh, who you know again is is gone through so much and and is such he really is the ultimate company man i mean to the point now where people thankfully i don't think i mean much of the modern audience now is actually looking at him the way we as fans looked at jr back in the day mm -hmm like institution and this, you know, like, oh, he's the voice of WWE. Cole used to say that to get booze. I'm the voice of WWE. <laughs> yeah. Cole, you know, again, nobody, he didn't come to us and say, let me be this crazy, outrageous heel character. You know, we came to to him in that, you know, I always, we, I, I tried this thing once called Top Rope Theater, which was just this, uh, some of these episodes are on YouTube, just absolutely ridiculous surreal backstage vignettes um where i think kelly kelly is kidnapped and it was howard finkel who did it it was supposed to be like this over the top 
you know, ridiculous soap opera type thing. And I think there was a couple episodes in there that we like had like Michael Cole give a heel line, which was really, really funny at the time because he was so straight laced. And so like, you know, he's your, you know, non-biased regular announcer. Um, and then when we did turn him heel, you know, sometimes back in the day, Vince would have his pet project and his favorite toys. And for whatever reason, heel Michael Cole became Vince's <laughs> obsession to the point where like, well, what about the money drawing angles we need to work on? I'm like, what is Cole doing? Like, <laughs> going to be in a glass box or something? I, you know, that was great. Um, <laughs> the Cole, Cole you know, he really... He did that like like a you know like, like truly like a like the ultimate company man. And then one day Vince was like, "Okay, we're putting an end to it." And then he was just straight laced announcer again. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing has been a bad dream. Uh, <laughs> that's who Cole is. You know, it's like anything you ask him to do, he'll do it and do it. You know, happily. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I could spend another hour talking to you about just the Michael Cole heel angle because, I mean, I'm obsessed, uh, but I won't. You got a lot of stuff to do. I do want to know, with you yeah. with you getting back into uh, this wrestling world, doing all these interviews that you've done on, on, on a bunch of the podcasts, having the book out, Tales from the Territories, Young Rock, I feel like, you know, your name is just coming up a lot more in wrestling conversations. Have any companies outside of WWE, AEW, or anyone else come to you and been like, look, I know you, you're you busy. I know you're working with Seven Bucks. I know you're an EVP over there, but is there any way that you would dip your toe back into writing for wrestling? No, I haven't. I haven't, you know, it, it's, you know, people know, um, I mean, if they either, um, that I'm like really happy doing what I'm doing. Um, I've also never had the opportunity to, you know, go really backstage at any other show. Every time uh, AEW has been in Queens, for instance, um, I've been either in Australia or Memphis for Young Rock. So I don't really even know many like backstage behind the scenes people at other companies. I just know the talent. Um, and it would obviously, you know, if, if anyone ever asks, it's a very, you know, uh, flattering and, and nice thing um, to have inquired about it. But, you know, I, I I'm really I love what I'm doing now. And I love like being able to work on, um, you know, just a whole whole spectrum of different types of projects, both scripted, unscripted, docu-series, documentaries, um, you know, features as far as, you know, contributing whatever I can on the, on the feature end. So it's, it's really something, you know, it's like every day, I know it's like kind of like a little cringeworthy to say, but like every day really is a new adventure because there's just so many projects on the table um, that, you know, I get to be a part of. And that was really, you know, as you as you saw, you know, in the book and everything else, like that was my issue towards my end of my WWE run in the sense of like, I really was like hitting a wall as far as like, is this all there is? Um, there's got to be more to this world out there than just, you know, who's going over on, uh, you know, Monday night. So, you know, finally, you know, I, I got to, you know, um, segue to, a, you know, a different world. And, uh, you know, it's been great ever since. But it's all a nice through line, you know. It's all yeah. it all it starts at MTV and working with The Rock, and it brings you to this this place where you're developing some of the best uh, television and film that is is happening right now. It's really really cool, man. The book is awesome. You know what a fan I am of that. Uh, Tales from the Territories is on Vice uh, every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, and it really is. I mean, it's an amazing show for anybody. Whether you like Dark Side, whether you don't, it's just 
I, I I feel like we are getting to that place. Like you said, you you lose track of how long it's been. And there was a time when I think the territories were discussed a lot. And I think that we're not realizing that that time is slipping away and that history is becoming stuff that existed after the territories did. So the fact yeah. that this is still there, I think is really, really, really cool. Cool. Yeah, no, appreciate it. Appreciate all of it and uh, feel the same way. And, you know, there's, um, I believe, uh, yeah, there's, uh, we got nine brand new episodes of Tales from the Territories, uh, you know, coming. And, you know, I think the first episode on Memphis is up on YouTube as well. So uh, definitely check it out if you haven't seen it yet. It's great. Check it out. And uh, Brian Gowertz, thank you so much for making some time, man. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. Let's do it again. For sure. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. Not Sam Wrestling.